The New Testament reading will be John 3, 22 through 36. The Old Testament reading, Exodus 11, and that will be our sermon text for today. As the children are getting resituated, let me take the opportunity to encourage you all to come to the afternoon service if you're able. It's really a, a wonderful time. I think it's an important time. Uh, we're able to preach through the great doctrines of the Christian faith with the help of our catechism. Um, and we are coming near the end of our catechism now. 107, there's 114 questions and it's only a few left and we'll conclude it by the end of the year and start anew and afresh in 2022. Um, this is a wonderful little section here as we look at the Lord's Prayer and learn how to pray. And then we pray. Phil just made mention of it and I thought I should emphasize this. Um, bring your children to the second service uh, they, they listen to the congregation pray. They're invited to pray too. The children of the members of the church are if they've been prepared by their parents. Um, but they're learning so much, I think, just from observation. And, and it is a wonderful time for the congregation to enter into corporate prayer together uh, to intercede on behalf of others. So please come if you're able. John three twenty two through 26 Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. After this, Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside, and He remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anan of Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let us go now to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus 11. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, 
And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. We've considered nine of the ten plagues. They've been presented to us in three sets of three. The Lord plagued Egypt with water turned to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, the death of livestock, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness. In each of these plagues, God demonstrated with unmistakable clarity that He is supreme over all things, including Pharaoh and the so-called gods of Egypt. He also displayed His justice and His mercy also his particular care for the people of Israel. And to understand this last point regarding his particular care for the people of Israel, we must remember the covenant that God made with Abraham. He promised to give Abraham many descendants to make a nation of them and to bring the Messiah into the world through them. This Messiah that would emerge from Israel would bless all nations. And so here in the outpouring of these plagues upon the Egyptians, God demonstrated His love and faithfulness towards Israel. We come now to the tenth of the ten plagues. We will see that it is by far the most severe of the ten. The message is the same though. The Lord the God of Israel is supreme over all things. He is just. He is also merciful. And under the old covenant, He had particular care and concern for the people of Israel. For through them the Messiah would be brought into the world to bless the nations. In chapters 7 through 10, we observed a very consistent literary pattern as Moses described the outpouring of the first nine plagues to us in three groups of three. Here in chapter 11, that literary pattern is broken. And there's a reason for that. Attention is being drawn to this tenth plague. It's being set off from the other nine so that we might really see its particular significance. Now, here in this chapter, the tenth plague is threatened. In chapters 12, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 28, instructions for the observance of the Passover will be given. And it is not until 1229 and following that we find a description of the outpouring of the tenth plague, the death of the firstborns of Egypt. And so the pattern is clearly broken. Attention is being drawn to this tenth, final, and most severe plague. It's set apart from the other nine, as most significant, for surely it is. Now please allow me to set the stage for our passage today. When we read 10, 28 through 29, we may have gotten the impression that Moses 
had walked out on Pharaoh. I'm asking you to remember uh, what we considered two Sundays ago now. Uh, do you remember how Moses' interaction with Pharaoh regarding the ninth plague concluded? Uh, 10.28 says, Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. You almost get the impression that that was the end of it, that that was the end of Moses' interaction uh, with Pharaoh. But in fact, Moses has more to say. It's not until the end of 12.8 that we hear of Moses' departure from the presence of Pharaoh. It's in 12.8 that we read, And Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So then, as we begin our passage for today, we are to imagine Moses still standing before Pharaoh um, and still with more to say to him. Verses 1 through 3 of our text are parenthetical, meaning they break the flow of the narrative a bit to help us understand what's going on. In verse 1 we read, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. The NIV translates verse 1 in this way, Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, etc. And I think this is a better translation. It's not that the Lord revealed this to Moses in the moment, you know, as he was there standing in the presence of Pharaoh, uh, but that he had revealed it to him uh, previously. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And here we see that that plague, the tenth plague, will be threatened. Uh, Moses, in other words, knew that there was one more plague to come this would be the final plague, and after this plague, Pharaoh would let Israel go. And in fact, he would not only let Israel go, we are told that the Egyptians would drive the Hebrews out of Egypt. The Egyptians would insist that they depart, given the severity of all of the plagues, and in particular this last one, they would say, it is time for you to leave. We've had enough of you, we've had enough of these plagues that have been brought upon us by your God. Here in verse 2, we also learn that Moses was to speak to the Hebrews, instructing them to request silver and gold from their Egyptian neighbors. And this was not new information given to Moses either. In fact, the Lord spoke of these things when He revealed Himself to Moses in that bush that was burning yet not consumed. It was way back in 320 of the book of Exodus that God said, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, after that he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So this plundering of the Egyptians that is here mentioned in our passage was in fact revealed ahead of time. Uh, here we are told that Moses was to instruct the Hebrews to ask this of their Egyptian neighbors. So then, the Israelites would not merely be released from Egyptian bondage. They would be driven out from Egypt, in fact. And they would not go out empty-handed, but they would go out with great wealth. The Egyptians would freely give unto them silver, gold, and clothing. The Hebrews would go out into the wilderness well-supplied. They would go out Wealthy. What a transformation. Uh, they were 
poor, impoverished slaves brutalized by their Egyptian captors for generations. But they were about to be set free. They were about to become their own nation, their own people, and they would go out with great wealth. I do believe, brothers and sisters, that this illustrates our redemption in Christ. We've been set free from bondage. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, Colossians 1.13. But we have also been well supplied. We have been well supplied. To quote Peter, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Do you hear that? God has granted to us everything that we need. We are... We are well supplied as his, as his children. I, I wonder if you think about that, brothers and sisters. You are well supplied. You have all that you need to thrive in Christ Jesus. Or to, uh, to, to, to borrow the language of, of Paul, um, he is talking about our inheritance in Christ in Ephesians 1.7 where he says, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will. You you hear the same sort of theme here. In Christ we've been redeemed, we've been set free, but we have a rich inheritance in Him. We see that Old Covenant Israel is a type of all of that. The Hebrews were not freed from Egyptian bondage to wander in the wilderness as poor beggars. No, they were set free, and they were also well supplied. They were set free, well supplied, and they began in that moment to sojourn towards a promised land, towards a marvelous inheritance, towards a land flowing with milk and honey. Don't you like that, that terminology there? You know, they're journeying towards a rich inheritance. And so it is for all who are in Christ Jesus. It is important for us to reflect upon that, brothers and sisters. I think we often think of ourselves as poor beggars, you know, barely hanging on as Christians in this world as we sojourn in this place. But it is not so. We have all things that we need, things pertaining to life and godliness. Commentators have wondered what to make of this plundering of the Egyptians. You know, was it theft? Some have asked. Was it theft? And we must say certainly not. For the Egyptians gave these gifts willingly. What did the Hebrews do? They did not take these things for themselves. They did not, uh, they did not steal them away. But rather they asked. And the Egyptians freely gave. Of course it was God who moved these Egyptians to freely give as they drove the Hebrews out of this place. I think we are to consider this plundering of the Egyptians as a kind of payment for the years of harsh, harsh bondage imposed upon the Hebrews by the Egyptians. You know, For generations these Hebrews worked for the Egyptians. Um, they were they were brutalized by them. They worked as slaves. They earned nothing for their labor. And yet here at the end God sends them out and, and they're given their wages as it were. And here we see something of the justice of God displayed. God has a way of making things that are wrong right, brothers and sisters. We have to believe this. 
we do not always see it with our natural eyes. And sometimes that can be very frustrating to the people of God. When we look out upon the world, we see the wicked prospering, we see the righteous suffering, and we say, why, Lord? And we say, how long, Lord? These are the questions that plague us. But we must know for certain that our God does have a way of making that which is wrong right. And we must believe that He will indeed do so at the end of time with perfect justice and with perfect equity. We see something of that here, I think, as the Hebrews are redeemed from their captivity and they are sent away with payment, as it were. They're sent away with great possessions. I think we see something here of the justice of God displayed. This parenthetical portion of the text concludes with these words, Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. It's not hard to understand why this is so. Moses' fame had spread amongst the Egyptians because God's power was put on display through him. Here we have one of many examples in the scriptures of God using the weak and the foolish to shame the wise and the powerful. We are to remember that Moses was a nobody, worldly speaking. He was thrown into the Nile to die as an infant, miraculously saved, brought up in the house of Pharaoh, but then he was a failed deliverer, a failed revolutionary, driven into the wilderness to tend to his father-in-law's sheep until he was an old man. Only then did God use him. Only after he was thoroughly humbled and brought low did God use him. And here we see this nobody Moses, who's, who's timid at the beginning of all of this, not even willing to be used by the Lord. And yet here we see that he is famous and great in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh's servants will bow down before him. Think of that. Think of how God has stripped everything away from Pharaoh. Even the loyalty of his own servants, these will bow down before Moses. They will give him honor. And in giving Moses honor, they will in fact give a degree of honor to God, the God of the Hebrews. In verses 4 through 8, we find the words of Moses to Pharaoh and the Egyptians concerning the tenth plague that was about to befall them. This tenth plague, as I have said, would be by far the worst. Read now verses 4 through 8. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. And the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl, growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord, Yahweh, makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Here we learn that at about midnight, the Lord Himself would go out into the midst of Egypt. Uh, the Lord is omnipresent, this we know. He is all places at all times. When the Lord says, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, He uses the language uh, that is proper to man and applies it to Himself to describe what He is about to do. It, it, this is a description of, of, of the Lord's action. 
The Lord, who is everywhere present, eternal and unchanging, would Himself go out into the midst of, of, of Egypt. This is a description of, of, of the activity of the Lord, what He would do in, in human history. He would go out, and what would He do? What would the Lord do as He went out into the midst of Egypt? Two things. He would put the firstborns of the Egyptians to death of both man and cattle. And He would also shield the Hebrews from destruction. This would produce a great cry in Egypt such as never had been heard before or ever would be heard again as men and women grieved the death of their relatives. Uh, verses, uh, verse 30 of chapter 12 will describe the event and say, And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. The words... But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, are very interesting. On the surface they communicate that the Lord would protect the Hebrews from this tenth, final, and most severe plague. The Hebrews would be protected. The Egyptians would be struck. But the Hebrews would be shielded. Not even a dog would growl at the Hebrews threateningly. But it is worth noting that the Egyptians worshipped a god named Anubis, who was to them the god of the dead. This Anubis was depicted as a human with the head of a dog or jackal. Can you picture that from, uh, from, from the artwork that we know of from, from Egypt? This, this god of the dead was depicted as a human with the head of a dog or a jackal. And I think what we have here is yet another demonstration of the Lord's supremacy over the so-called gods of Egypt. Do you remember how this is true of every single plague? Every single plague demonstrates Yahweh's supremacy over the, the so-called gods of Egypt. He's demonstrating to the Egyptians, to the Hebrews, to the whole world that He alone is God and that these gods are no gods at all. He has power over all of these things you know, that were struck. Uh, in the plagues. And here we have yet another example of that. The Egyptians thought that Anubis had the power over life and over death. And here Yahweh says, No, that's me. I have the power to give life and to bring death. I'm the one with the authority over life or death, not Anubis or your god Osiris. Uh, the Lord would put the firstborns of Egypt to death and shield his covenant people from harm. Not a dog would growl against any of the people. Of Israel. Our lives are in the Lord's hands, brothers and sisters. He is the one with the power to give life, and He is the one with the power to take it away. This power does not belong to us. This power does not belong to any created thing, but to the Lord only. And He demonstrated that to the Egyptians, indeed to the whole world, in the outpouring of this tenth plague. This is something for the people of God to reflect upon. Our lives are in the Lord's hands. He holds us. He sustains us moment by moment. He has given us life. He sustains our life. He has the right power to take it away also. He has numbered our days. We must honor Him as the God of life and of death. And no other thing. We have this tendency to... to to pretend as if we have the ability to control life or death, or that other things have the ability to protect us from death. It is the Lord only. It is the Lord only, ultimately. Our lives are in the Lord's hands, brothers and sisters. The last announcement that Moses made to Pharaoh was this, 
And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who followed you. After that I will go out. And with this, Pharaoh would be left utterly devastated and thoroughly shamed. And the plagues the Lord struck at the land of Egypt, He struck at the people of Egypt, the wealth of Egypt, and even at Pharaoh himself. And at the end, Pharaoh's own servants would pay homage to the Lord as they bowed before Moses, the Lord's servants. So you can picture now Pharaoh with all of his pomp and arrogance standing there utterly defeated, humiliated, and dismayed. The Lord has stripped everything from him. And then we read that Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger, and I say, rightly so. Pharaoh was a very wicked man. He treated the Hebrews brutally, and he stubbornly refused to turn from his sin and to submit himself to the Word of God, despite all of these signs being shown to him, despite all of these plagues being brought against him. He stubbornly refused to turn from his sin and to submit himself to the Word of God. Now, in the third and final portion of this passage, we hear the Lord speaking once again to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This should sound very familiar to you by now, for something like this was said at the end of each one of the plagues. Notice once again that it was Pharaoh who sinned, By not listening to the word of the Lord delivered through Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, the Lord said. Pharaoh will not listen to you. But God had a purpose even for this, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And I say, isn't it interesting how God can use even the sins and stubborn rebellion of wicked men for His own glory? He has a way of doing this. He has a way of using even the sins and the stubborn rebellion of wicked men for His own glory. It was because of Pharaoh's stubbornness that the Lord multiplied His wonders in Egypt, one after the next. There will be this outpouring of the tenth plague. But remember that Pharaoh's heart remained stubborn even still. We'll come to this eventually, of course. But Pharaoh gathered his army, even as the Hebrews left Egypt and pursued them yet again. We still have the episode of the Red Sea to consider, don't we? The parting of it. Hebrews walking through and the Egyptian army being covered by those waters. So the Lord is piling up all of these signs and wonders so as to demonstrate beyond shadow of doubt that He is God Most High and worthy of our praise. And yet we know that it was the Lord who hardened Pharaoh's heart. This does not take away from the fact that Pharaoh's sin was Pharaoh's sin. We know that Pharaoh hardened his own heart as he willingly and stubbornly refused to heed the word of the Lord. But God was sovereign even over this. We're learning something here, aren't we, about God, about how He relates to man, about man's condition. We're learning here in the early chapters of of Exodus and in the early books of the Bible that God is God Most High. Man is free, makes real decisions on his own that he, in fact, is is responsible for, but yet God is sovereign even over this. We see this dynamic, uh, we see this interplay uh, between God and Pharaoh. Pharaoh is sinfully rebelling against God, and yet God is sovereign even over this. He, He is the one hardening Pharaoh's heart as an act of judgment against him. We must confess that the Lord was right to do so. 
He has the right to do even this, to harden men's hearts as an act of judgment against them. The story that we've considered today is rather straightforward on the surface. Uh, Here, the tenth of the ten plagues is is threatened. Uh, Here, Moses concludes his interaction with Pharaoh. He finally now walks away uh, in hot anger. Never will he speak to Pharaoh again. But I'd like to spend just a little bit of time reflecting on the significance of this story. Uh, There's a lot that could be said, of course. But as I thought about this announcement, that the Lord Himself would go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt would die, I remembered how offensive this is to many in the world and even many within the church today. Are you following along with me? The Lord Himself would go out into Egypt to put to death the firstborns of Egypt both of man and of cattle. Uh, This thought that the Lord Himself would do this is deeply offensive to many within the world, and I have found that it is even offensive to many within the church today. You can hear their complaints, can't you? They would say, this is unjust. How could God be in the right to put these innocent ones to death? Can you hear them say it? Or, The God of the Bible is a God of love and grace. I cannot believe that He Himself would go out into Egypt to put these to death, etc., etc. You can hear their complaints. You can anticipate their objections as we read this story. It really is a disturbing story, isn't it? It's a serious story, a heavy one, that God would pour out this judgment upon this people, the Egyptians. So where do we begin with objections like these? I think, first of all, we must insist that this is, in fact, what the Holy Scriptures teach regarding God. It cannot be denied. This certainly is the God of the Bible. And if you've been taught that the God of the Bible is only about love and grace, then you've been terribly misled. For clearly, He is also about justice. He's also about judgment. God is love, perfectly so. He is merciful, gracious, and kind. We know this to be true. And this truth is also demonstrated powerfully throughout this Exodus story in many different ways. Is not God's mercy, grace, and kindness put on display uh, throughout the Exodus story? Certainly it is. But we must not forget that the Lord is perfectly holy and just. He is not only the God who saves, He is also the God who judges. The Exodus event is is a demonstration of both things. Here we see the extension of God's mercy and grace on the one hand and God's justice on the other. And I am saying to you, brothers and sisters, that both truths must be proclaimed, both truths must be believed. The God of Holy Scripture is not only merciful, He's also just. He is not only our Redeemer, He is also the judge of all who have ever lived. And in fact, these truths fit together hand in hand. When we speak of God's justice, we declare what it is that our sins deserve. When we speak of God's justice, we are are speaking of what our sins deserve. And when we speak of God's mercy, we are declaring that God does not always give us what we deserve. When we speak of His grace, we declare the good gifts that He has bestowed upon unworthy sinners instead. 
So God's mercy and grace, I am saying to you, God's mercy and grace really cannot be comprehended apart from His justice. Here is what we deserve as sinners. But God has been merciful to us. He has, he has withheld what it is that we deserve in His mercy. He has refrained from giving us what we deserve. And more than that, He's been gracious to us. He's bestowed upon us these marvelous gifts instead. His grace is truly marvelous. But in order to understand mercy and grace, we must understand justice. And I'm saying that we get a little taste of God's justice in the Exodus. We, we get a little taste. We see a little bit of His judgments poured out here. Here we are reminded that God is judge of all the earth. It is His right to punish the wicked for their sins. He does not do wrong, but right when He strikes against sinners. This He has done in a partial way throughout the history of the world. And this He will do in a full and final way at the end of time. This is the God of Holy Scripture, brothers and sisters. I've said this before, but I think it is worth saying again. In the book of Exodus, God is revealed to us. In the Exodus event, and in the record that we have of it, the book of Exodus, God is revealed to us. It's, it's the central purpose of this book. Behold your God. This is your God, Christian. This is the God of Holy Scripture. This is the God of all creation. This is the God of redemption. Here He is. Do you remember how the Lord revealed His name to Moses in that bush that was burning yet not consumed? His proper name, Yahweh, was revealed to us. And here in this book we learn what His name means. It it signifies many things. He is God Almighty. He's the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He is self-existent, eternal and unchanging. But His name does also say something about His right to show mercy to whomever He wills and to judge. I'm not making this up. It's what the book of Exodus itself teaches with complete clarity. It's what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 9 as he arkens back to this entire episode. He, the, the Scriptures are telling us this is who God is. Here is His name, Yahweh, and here is what His name means. Uh, this will become increasingly clear as the story of the Exodus continues. Here we see it demonstrated in action in the outpouring of this tenth plague as God poured out His wrath on the Egyptians but shielded the Hebrews. But later in Exodus, the Lord will simply say it explicitly. In that episode where God showed Himself to Moses on the mountain, the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, that is Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That is Exodus 33, 19. So are you making the connection here? Here the Lord is again revealing Himself to Moses. He's putting uh, His name on display. He's saying to Moses and through Moses to the people of Israel and even to us, Here is who I am. I am Yahweh. And what does that mean? Well, in part it means I will show mercy and grace to whomever I will. A little later in that same episode we read, The Lord, Yahweh, passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, on the children 
and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, this text will be handled carefully in the months to come when we come to Exodus 34 and consider verses 6 through 7. But here I want you to see yet again this emphasis. Here the Lord is revealing His name to Moses, Yahweh, and He declares what it is that His name means. Um, He is revealing Himself as the God who is merciful and gracious and kind, patient, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He is a God of justice. He is the God who judges too. This is your God. This is the God of Holy Scripture. This is the God that we worship and serve. We're to see the connection. When God reveals Himself as the Lord, He emphasizes His right to show mercy to whomever He wills, and also His right to judge. To the professing Christian who says, The God of the Bible is love and not wrath. I say, friend, you are terribly mistaken. In fact, I'm afraid that you have slipped into idolatry. You have made for yourself a God in your own image and have rejected God's self-revelation. You have decided for yourself who God is, being driven by your own reason, being driven by your own emotion, but you have rejected God's self-revelation, for here we have it. Here we have it in the pages of Holy Scripture. The God of Scripture is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's faithful. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sins, but He will by no means clear the guilty. And this reality was demonstrated at the time of the flood, at the time of the exodus. It was demonstrated at the cross too. There at the cross of Christ, the mercy of God was displayed as Jesus died to atone for the sins of God's elect. We speak often of that, don't we? There at the cross, the mercy and grace of God was put on display. But also, there at the cross, the justice of God was displayed. For there at the cross of Christ, God did pour out His wrath upon Christ as He stood in our place, in the place of sinners. So the cross of Christ itself is not just about love and mercy and grace. It is about all of those things. But there we also see a demonstration of the wrath of God as Christ bore the penalty that you and I deserve to pay. He stood in our place, brothers and sisters. He paid the penalty for our sins. He took upon Himself the wrath of God. So to all of those professing Christians who are troubled by these instances in the Old Testament wherein the just judgments of God are poured out on sinners, I ask, what do you think about what the Scriptures have to say regarding the final judgment itself? What do you think about that? You know, at the end of time, God will judge the wicked through Christ. The Scriptures teach so clearly that all who are not in Christ, all who are still in their sins, will be judged fully, finally, and for all eternity. This judgment that was poured out on the Egyptians in the tenth plague was just a a taste, it was just a type of this final judgment that is yet to come. The same Jesus who brought us salvation will also judge. Did you know that? That God will judge the nations through Christ. Jesus himself said so. In Matthew 25 through 31, rather, 25 31, we hear Christ saying, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, speaking of his second coming, 
and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he, he speaking of himself here, the Son of Man, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Who will do this at the end of time? God will do this through Christ. The same Christ who died for our sins and rose again in victory and ascended to the Father's right hand. The same Christ who has redeemed us will judge at the end of time. He will make this distinction between sheep and goats. And what distinguishes between sheep and goats, brothers and sisters? It is faith in Christ that makes the distinction. For we are all by nature children of wrath. But when we come to faith in Christ, we receive that most blessed gift of adoption. We are made to be sons of God, daughters of God. We come to be partakers of life eternal. So at the end of time, Christ will distinguish between sheep and goats. The sheep will receive mercy and grace. The goats will receive just condemnation. Jesus Himself taught this. And I am saying to you that the plagues of the Exodus, and particularly the tenth, were but a foretaste of this. Brothers and sisters, this is the God of the Bible. From beginning to end, the Lord reveals Himself to us as the God who is merciful, gracious, and kind, and also just. Yahweh has the right to show mercy to whomever He will. He will by no means clear the guilty. The second thing that needs to be said in response to this idea that God is somehow wrong or unjust to judge as He did at the time of the Exodus is that none are innocent. None are innocent. How could God put all of these innocent ones to death the world says, or, or, or some professing Christians might say, how could God put all of these innocent ones to death? None are innocent, but all are deserving of God's condemnation, including you and me by nature. Including you and me. You can see then that men make two errors. One, they misunderstand God. They bring Him low in their minds and transform Him into nothing more than a God of kindness and love. He is, in their minds, nothing more than a benevolent old man in the sky. And it is no wonder then that they do not fear Him. They have managed to form and fashion Him into a little idol that they can contain and control. Their God is for them and never against them, even as they go on living in rebellion against Him. This is not the God of the Bible, friends. The God of Scripture is love, and perfectly so. And because He is love, He does also hate with perfect hatred all that is evil and all that is opposed to Him. And the second mistake that men make is to misunderstand mankind. To put the matter most succinctly, sinful men do err in bringing God low, and they also err in exalting man in their hearts and minds. They imagine that human beings are by nature innocent and deserving of good from God, But the Scriptures say otherwise. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." That is Romans 3, 10-18. 
This is what the scriptures say, and I say to you, do you really need the scriptures to say it to you? Cannot you look around the world and see that this is so? This is man's condition. We are by nature sinners. We are by nature children of wrath being born under Adam, who obliterated that covenant of works that was made with him. We are born in sin. We need a Savior. Friends, the scriptures are very clear. God is holy and just, and we are born in sin, deserving of His judgments. The Egyptians that the Lord put to death were deserving of this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. And let us not forget the particularly heinous atrocities that these people committed against the Hebrews by commanding that their male children be thrown into the Nile while subjecting them to a lifetime of brutal slavery. Egypt assaulted God's son Israel for generations, and now the God of Israel would enact justice upon them. Here in the outpouring of the tenth plague, we see a type of of the judgment that is to come at the end of time. But notice, this was not the final judgment, clearly. For it was restrained. Only the firstborn of Egypt would die, and they would die a physical death. The final judgment, though, will bring eternal death. This is why I say that this tenth plague was a type of the final judgment. But we will also find a type of Christ here. For as God passes through Egypt to put the Egyptians to death, He will also pass through Egypt to shield His people from the destroyer. And who will survive this tenth plague? Who will it be? All who have the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doorposts will be spared. It's a type of the final judgment here, but there is also a type of Christ. Yes, the Lord is merciful. He provides a way for salvation. He provides a way for deliverance through the blood of the lamb. The message for us is this. Fear the Lord, friends. Fear Him. And I'm saying that to you as a Christian. Fear the Lord. Have reverence for Him. Honor Him. It's already been emphasized in this service today. He's not just your friend. He's made you a beloved child through faith in Christ. Yes, this is true. We have confidence to come before Him. Yes, this is true. He loves you. He has set His love upon you by His grace, by His mercy. This is true. But He is God Most High. He is God Almighty. We must have reverence for our God. We must fear the Lord, friends. And as we fear the Lord, we must run to Christ for refuge. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the Savior. He is the way. We must be found in Him. We must be cleansed by His blood. God has been gracious to us to provide a Savior, but we must be found in Him by faith. We must be found in Him so that we might be shielded from the wrath of God to come. God is holy and just, brothers and sisters, friends, and so fear Him. Do not run from Him, run to Him. For God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is good news. This He does through Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whom God has provided as a substitute for sinners. And I am saying to you, be found in Him by faith. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. 
Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. They teach us how we are to live, and this is a great blessing. But above even this, we find in the Holy Scriptures your self-revelation. You have revealed yourself to us. And this is the highest blessing, that we might know you for who you are. Uh, Father, humble our hearts. Make us able and willing to receive this self-revelation that you have provided. Help us to know you for who you are. Increase our fear for you, O Lord. But may it be the kind of fear that causes us to run to you, for we know that you are merciful and kind, and that you have provided a Savior. I pray for those who have faith in Christ, that their faith would be strong, that they would cling to him all the days of their life, that they would savor him more and more, trusting in him more and more. And for those who do not yet have faith, I pray that you would draw them, O Lord. Would you show them their sin? Would you show them what their sins deserve? And would you show them Christ? May they run to Him and be shielded by Him, being washed in His blood. God, you are kind to us, and we are grateful. Help us to worship and serve you, O Lord. For to this end we were made. In the name of Christ we pray, and all of God's people say, Amen.